feel like courage is something you have to practice. Right? Because courage, in, in my in my estimation, the way I see it is seeing what the risk is and deciding to do it anyway. Right? Like choosing what's right over what's safe or what's easy. And that requires building the habit and the like fortitude and the thick skin to go and do that every day. I think I've certainly had courageous moments, often inspired by other people's courageous moments. It's like a collection of daily, hourly, momentary choices where we practice courage. This is Ferguson Voices, Disrupting the Frame, a moral courage project presented by Proof, Media for Social Justice, and the University of Dayton Human Rights Center. I'm Jada Woods. Act four, the cost of courage. If a friend or family member asked you for a favor, you'd probably do it. At least you like to think you would do it. If it weren't terribly inconvenient or disruptive or costly, probably. We'd all like to think we are the kind of people that can be relied upon to pitch in when we're needed, to bring our efforts and skills to bear when necessary, or even just show up and be present for your neighborhood or community. Cancel an appointment, call off a meeting, no show at work, stand up a date, skip the premiere of the new season of your favorite TV show. Doing the right thing entails subverting your own preferences, even your own well-being, for the sake of something else, maybe something greater or more important than yourself. Sounds easy enough, sounds reasonable, sounds like a scenario that we can imagine ourselves responding well to, like we are indeed the kind of people that we think we are, generous, dedicated, loyal, and courageous. Because it takes courage to do the right thing. If it were easy, then it wouldn't be in question. Practicing moral courage means putting purpose first, and this comes with consequences. Some anticipated, some unforeseen, Consequences vary based on everything. Whatever you have, you stand to lose. To do it anyway because it's right, whatever the cost, is one definition of courage. Out protesting is just standing up for what you believe and I guess you have to have courage to be able to stand up against people who are the one that's more more than and bigger than you and have more weapons than what you have. You don't have any weapons. Valerie Felix was 12 years old when Michael Brown was shot. I was known as the outspoken protester in seventh grade. I would send videos or show videos in class, so we always knew what was going on like in the first few months of school. By that age, Valerie already experienced racism and discrimination, but didn't appreciate the depths of the problem. Growing up in St. Louis, I've never had any racial problems outside in the, the community, but the school I'm, I'm going to, it's like very diverse, but there's also groups who like will say, well, I can't play with you because you're black. Or when I went outside to my grandparents' house to play basketball, they're like, well, our parents said we can't play with any black kids. So there was, there was always a, an awareness about the racial things going on, but I just never really clicked until, I guess, the Mike Brown things happened, and it really showed how people are really racist still. Surveying the priorities of seventh graders, protesting police violence doesn't always register high up on the list. For one thing, protesting can be dangerous, but perhaps more identifiable for a middle schooler, protesting can be unpopular. It's like called a challenge class for like the smarty kids. And so we have, it's like majority white kids and like two or three black kids. So my social studies teacher, she loved to talk about Ferguson. And 
I was like the only protester like in that school. So like I got asked questions about what was going on and we always talked about it, but there was always that one kid who would call me a thug or say that I'm being racist for making it an issue of race. If I would stop looting and stealing from my own community and stuff, it's just like they would just watch the TV and not really go out to see what was going on. They just believed everything that the news said, which was not true at all. Being challenged by classmates in this way would have deterred many young people. But Valerie is an individual tuned into a sense of right and wrong, and she paid a price. I've lost lots and lots of friends. Um, I went to a specific church, and after the Mike Brown incident, I, I just, everyone at the church just stopped talking to me, and I'm only in contact with one of the people that went to that church, and that's like very little contact. I felt frustrated because they were cutting me off because of something I, I strongly believed in. We went through a lot of stuff together, and it's just, I was there for them, and at one time I felt I had to do something, no one was there for me. I continued to protest because with or without them, I had to help make my future better and help make kids after me futures better, and it's just like, Friends come and go, so you just have to know when they're gone, you keep fighting. You don't, you don't need them to fight with you. You have, you have yourself. When things got tough, Valerie turned to a trusted teacher, someone who had her back. I talked to my favorite teacher, Dr. Bird. That was the person I always went to when, any, when I had a problem at school or like with church or anything. I would just tell her what was going on, and she would just say, well... The only reason you're losing friends is because they know that you're doing something right and they're just scared to step up like you did. Valerie is in high school now, focusing on things that high schoolers focus on. And judging by her role models, she'll be all right. Beyonce is my favorite singer. <laughs> so, Beyonce and Bernie Sanders. So on August 9th, going out, to, going out there, I felt like this was something that was going to change my life. Uh, I didn't know how. I just, just had this feeling like I have to keep doing this. I have to keep doing this. I have to keep doing this. This is something I cannot let go. Um, I need to get my own car. If I can't use my dad's car, I need to find out. I need to get more batteries for my camera. I need to do something because this is going to be something very, very important. From day one, Bradley Rayford was on the ground in Ferguson, playing a self-appointed role as a photojournalist. Having taken up the trade of photography, Bradley was used to more controlled, casual settings like weddings and engagement sessions. But on August 9th, he was not employed by a newspaper or media outlet, which means he was not compensated, nor was he protected. A compulsive sense of duty drove Bradley to bear witness. Photography for me is, is more so a way to become connected to the world. That was my way of expressing myself. What draws me to it? Um, the fact that I can capture life and share it with people. And that's what he did as early as those first days. Bradley was present on the morning of August 10th as crowds gathered in front of the police department. But as many photographers before him have reported, being in a space and living an event through the lens of a camera places distance between yourself and those around you. Distance that allows you to remain apart if only in that moment. It's a local radio program called the Demetrius Johnson Show. It comes on every Sunday. He was interviewing Leslie McSpadden, and someone had that blasting on their car radio. 
clear as day was her talking about her son being killed. I'm tired of being fearful for our children when they leave the house. And this has to stop. This has to stop now. This is the breaking point. Something has to be done. And you see people just looking just so confused and dazed. Like, this is so surreal. Like, can't I believe this happened? And for me, as it, it kind of felt like I was... I was I wasn't there. It felt weird and eerie. It was just it's like an out of a body experience to experience this firsthand. The weight of the moment burrows its way into you, but is impossible to ignore forever. The emotional gravity of the situation surfaces later after the work is done and the streets are clear. But until then, the work of the photographer is ongoing and constant. Late nights, early mornings, concern for personal security going long periods without eating and paying no attention to other aspects of health, in particular, emotional well-being. It wasn't a decompressed moment. It wasn't me handling the moment. It wasn't me realizing. I didn't realize the emotional turmoil was taking on me. Um, I, didn't realize, I didn't see it, nor did I care, because at this moment, go, 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 go. This is not about you. Who cares how tired you are? Go out to Ferguson and cover it. Now I'm feeling the emotional, the emotional um, impacts uh, of it um, now. It's tough, it's tough. Bradley is now beginning to reflect and take stock, accounting for how he has grown and changed since Ferguson. All that has gone well for him, as well as the heaviness he still carries. Several mainstream media outlets featured Bradley's work. Rich, captivating imagery of commotion and grief, anger, and uncertainty, which helped earn him a fellowship at MSNBC. But his own costly process of healing is still underway. Something that I feel I have to do, but it was something that I wish I was better prepared for emotionally, because it definitely took a huge emotional toll on me, huge. I think some people, they see all this good stuff happening to people, but... At the same time, there's just as much, probably even more, emotional turmoil on the ways on people. The individual accountability Bradley expresses is echoed throughout his story. He is aware that a series of intentional decisions brought him to the site of protest. And those decisions and impulses continued to bring him back, day after day. It was his choice to go out and practice his craft, his calling, placing the subject matter first and honoring the seriousness of the circumstances around him. I could easily go fund me like some people did, got a couple thousand dollars and supported my operations. But no, once again, that would have made the moment about me. Why does this, why does this, why do I need a thousand dollars? And this mom just lost her kid. There are plenty of folks, I think, that sit in positions like I do where we are financially comfortable. We kind of we hobnob with like important people around town, right? Like we can call the mayor or call the governor if we want, who and whether or not we are people of color that like I am, that relative privilege allows us so often to just opt out, right? And be like, well, I'll go to the like happy hour where, you know, me buying three drinks that I was going to buy anyway on a Tuesday afternoon. Well, some of that money will go to Mike Brown's family, right? It's like, that's nice. 
Also, there are people putting their bodies on the line. For me, like 15 minutes from my house and in a neighborhood where I spent a lot of my childhood and a lot of like my really rich black memories are in Ferguson. And so it was just like, yeah, we don't actually get to opt out of this thing, right? And it's important for it to not just be folks who don't have financial privilege or folks who aren't college educated or folks who don't speak the King's English. It's important for them to not be standing by themselves right now. Or like I can stand next to you, I can stand behind you, I can stand with you, certainly with uh, students who were really my first inspiration for getting out there and for staying out there. Because the first night I got tear gassed, I was standing next to a middle schooler who like, when it was over, he basically like dusted himself off and went right back out into the middle of the street. And I was like, well, if you can do it, <laughs> right? If you can be way braver than I am and be half my age, then I can, I can get up off my high horse and do the same thing. As a leader with Teach for America St. Louis, Brittany Packnick had a public profile in the city. Her work and her role bridged a gap between classroom, city hall, and foundation boardrooms. Joining protesters on the streets, she exposed herself to some heat and potential backlash at work. But she was convinced it was worth the risk because of the continuity between her work as an educator and her efforts as a protester. There was also this like really clear cognitive exercise I had to do as like a very public professional in St. Louis who like raises lots of money in the region and has like high profile relationships because I constantly had to be thinking about what people were seeing from me um, which is why like I didn't put my name on the newsletter right like it wasn't until maybe the fourth or fifth open letter that I actually put my name on there as the primary author right so it was like if my contribution is like writing the words then like I'm willing to give that without identifying myself, right? Because that is more important than like me getting the credit. And I also like have 20,000 black and brown students on my watch that I think about every single day, right? It's not about like me keeping my job. If I just had a regular job, I probably would already quit it by now. This is about the fact that like I'm in this work. I, I, I do what I do in my full-time job in education for justice and I'm out on the streets for justice. And so I don't actually feel like I can choose between the two. Um, and yet there were plenty of people who were not pleased, right? When I started doing more interviews and when I was writing op-eds and when my organization was very supportive of the work that we were doing and of our students and our community here, there were some people who were like really, really, really not pleased. And so I would get, I would get notified in various ways about how much people were unpleased. It seems to be a balance Brittany has maintained well. She has gone on to serve with the Ferguson Commission and President Obama's Task Force on 21st Century Policing and is a co-director, along with other Ferguson protesters, of Campaign Zero, a policy initiative confronting police violence. Brittany has risen in prominence and is readily identified as a national representative of the Black Lives Matter movement. But with this rise, which she admits has afforded her greater privileges, also comes unsettling implications. If I'm honest, I think the other real risk, though, is like getting too far removed, right? Because suddenly we're having all these conversations with these fancy people and we're in these documentaries, you know, we're like meeting at the White House and people are like fawning, people who never would have known your name before, or people who didn't speak to you before want to speak to you now, right? Like people fawning all over you and you can get caught up in, you can get caught up in glamour that surrounds something that is not at all glamorous, right? That is like still a real fight. Um, 
police are still killing people today, right? Like systemic oppression still exists right now, right? Um, the trauma is still real for our communities every single day. If you know, there are kids walking to school with that trauma on their backs right now. There are mothers on buses right now with that trauma on their backs, and none of no none of those folks and no one in our community is served well by us going out there and just being stars. That's actually that's not just not the point, right? And it's a real risk to get caught up in all of that stuff and forget why you're having these conversations with people, right? Forget that like it's actually so that. You know, I got woke and I want to awaken you too, right? That that's the point of it, that I, I want to get you working. I want to get you using your power and privilege to help uproot this thing. And so it's just about, like, remaining really proximal to 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 the risk, right? To Like, to the level of risk that, that our, our people are facing every day um, and not getting caught up in the hype, which I think is always a risk whenever somebody turns a spotlight on you. What she could not anticipate was the possible harm to something more dear than her job. Harm brought on by her exposure to tear gas. Tear gas sucks. There is really nothing glamorous about having your entire face burn, right, and your eyes water and, like, not being able to breathe, not being able to see what's in front of you or behind you. You're running and you have no idea if you're about to run into something or someone. I still have a bruised lung. Um, We know that tear gas has been known to have... Um, abortive qualities so it causes miscarriages and I am of childbearing age or I want to have children one day and so myself and my friends and, and, and family and protests like the women especially we are asking all these really scary questions of our doctors right now and trying to figure out what the effects are going to be I have an appointment with my OBGYN in a couple of weeks that I'm really afraid of like I'm just like I don't know what you're going to tell me I don't know if you can tell me anything it's it's a wild thing to be both scared you can't have children and scared of having black children at the same time. And that's like exactly where I am. The cost that Brittany endured in Ferguson will stay with her. Emotional trauma and physical effects from the risks she took may linger on into her future. For Tori Russell, it wasn't his job he was worried about. Coming home from coaching football practice on August 9th, Tori started to get the news of the shooting. Um, but then I started seeing a photo of Mike Brown's dead body laying in the street. It just kept coming. And I think at that point, I said, you know, I want to do something about it. And I just didn't know what. Prior to the movement, I, I would participate in, like, protests and marches, but you know, I'm a jock. So, I, you know, I was a camp body. I was a protest body. I was just another person with a sign and T-shirt. I took some photos. It was dope, you know, kept, you know nice profile pics. Um, but nothing ever came from it. What Tori describes as a protest body describes most of us. Maybe we've been to an action or a rally. Maybe we make some symbolic gesture on social media, but it ends there. Tori took next steps, drawing on what he'd learned in his years working odd jobs. I worked labor jobs. That didn't work. Worked at a daycare. That was kind of whack. I mean, I worked a lot of jobs. I was a bum. I'm just whatever. I, but I can't say all those jobs taught me to be an organizer. It taught me to work with uh, single mothers. It taught me to work with ex-incarcerated people. I think a lot of people in the movement need to go work in factory jobs, to be honest. Nothing like a factory job to teach you um, that they don't value your work. You know, it humbles you. Some of your best workers are the people who end up, you know, snoring heroin in the bathroom on lunch break. but. Uh, they keep the uh, assembly line going. The veteran who talks to himself, 
sleeps in his car, but is an expert on fixing the machine. You know, I think all those jobs and all those people taught me to be organized and organize a lot of people. And so I'm glad I was a professional bum. So Tori went to work. From August through what was known as Ferguson October, he and his comrades were responsible for many major actions across the region, many which were replicated across the country. I always say I'm a hood nigga who like to read books. And so I've always read like about Malcolm and Stokely and Ella and how they organized. Never thought it would happen here. Um, but I tried to apply that. Now you got to think about it. You can, if you can shut down a Monday night football game with about 40 people, 30 people, with just some banners and some chants, that lets people know the power of people being a collective and an organization. Now we shut down the highway with 10 cars. You know, it's, it's not hard to shut down a highway. Cars stop on the highway traffic stops. You get out and say whatever you want or just sit there. It don't take a lot. And I think that I think that's kind of like the power of Ferguson that a lot of people who do the organize and do actions have seen some of the stuff that we do and it's it's not a lot of us. It's don't it doesn't take mass amounts of people to wake the world up. The potential for collective action to advance the cause of racial justice and even more basic claims to dignity sparked Tory to keep on. What he learned on the streets of Ferguson, he continues in his community work. And this commitment to the spiritual principles of freedom motivate him to persist. I don't think people really have had the opportunity to dream of what is freedom. Um, and so when I work with you know young youth or kids, I always ask them, you know, what does freedom look like? People always say that our ancestors died for us to vote. I always disagree and say they died for us to be free. And voting was just a stepping stone to that. Would you sacrifice your life to be free? That's how I kind of look at the movement is that in the meantime, in peacetime, we have programs, services, speak outs and shit. But um, when wartime happens, um, where will your body be? Where is your sacrifice for your people? Like Brittany, Tori can't forget the feeling, the pain of the chemical agents regularly sprayed at protesters by police. That shit burn, and it seemed like it don't never leave. It's just, it's a constant burning, and it gets in your lungs, and you can't breathe. Uh, the tear gas gets into your lungs, but it's shocking. So you like, and you breathe it in, and you get the Maalox and wipe it out, and it's gone. And you can't, you try to struggle to breathe, but after a while you come to pepper spray. For some people, it's almost like death. And so for me, every time I get pepper spray, uh, you know, I'll go to the hospital. It's to the point where I had to just start pepper spraying myself to get acclimated to it so I don't go into shock or something. Because I don't, I, don't, I don't want a weakness. I don't want the police to say, oh, I can pepper spray him. He one of the leaders. He one of the organizers. I pepper spray him enough times. He might not come out or he might die. No, you know, so you might have to, they're going to have to come up with something different. I have to get acclimated to it. Sound crazy? Sure. A little off balance? Maybe. But whatever the judgment, it is a testament to the protest mindset and the way it changed Tory. This change was brought about by his experience in Ferguson and the cost he endures for the commitment he's made. And for the price he paid, now he wants to see the receipts. Receipts in the form of freedom. If you wasn't in Ferguson when the shit was, you know, really like popping and really like live, um, you know, I hate to, I hate to tell people well, you miss freedom. 
I'm not gonna lie to you. Yeah, we got um, post traumatic stress syndrome, and yeah, we fucked up, and we probably rant and cuss people out on Twitter. And we get into it, and we only are that angry and that passionate because we actually taste your freedom. I don't think you know what it feel like to uh, be free, um, to do whatever the fuck you want to do. We could eat whatever we wanted. We could actually run in our community and not get stopped. If the police did stop, it was a hundred people coming out. We stop people from going to get arrested. We snatch like, or we just be peaceful as fuck and and be left alone, and be free. You know, people. You know, we organize people not paying rent here. People did not pay rent for months, like free as fuck. Probably compared to uh, somebody that was a slave. Um, who actually escaped uh, and was free and maybe just went out west and was free as fuck, just roaming in California and Nevada, just being free and building a community and smiling. You know, you still have problems, but they weren't as bad as those problems, and you was actually building something, and it was good. Um, and then one day you, you see the white settlers come, and they put you back in slavery. That's probably uh, what motivates me. It's because, you know, I tasted freedom, and, and ain't nothing tasted like it since. It's like probably having the perfect sandwich, um, the perfect sauce, uh, just, I would say, chicken and shrimp kind of thing, some sauteed onions, um, with a big cup of uh, Kool-Aid, a juice on the side of it, them seasoned sweet potato fries with the broth. That's what it tasted like. Um, you know, if, to me, it felt like um, felt like you know, um, on your worst day ever, you get to come home, your mama give you a hug, and you forget about your whole bad day. That's what it felt like, um, and it kind of, you know, it, <laughs> it probably it probably looked like you know, probably like Steph Curry shooting. You know, you just shoot and you know shit going in, so you just turn your back on and don't nothing happen, and you hear it go in. That's what it looked like. You just know the shit good. And I want the world to feel that shit. Freedom, like tear gas, stays with you. You inhale as it fills your lungs, suffocating you, forcing you to breathe deeper while preventing new air from flowing in. It's a feeling you never forget and never escape. It transforms you, and in spite of the cost, you go back for more. Ferguson Voices Disrupting the Frame is a podcast, multimedia exhibit, and storytelling website. Visit fergusonvoices.com for the integrated experience, which includes photography and additional interview excerpts. Thank you to the people of Ferguson, Missouri, who participated in this project and trusted us with their stories. The Ferguson Voices podcast is a collaboration produced by Joel Proust and the Moral Courage Project team, written by Joel Proust and Amanda D narrated by Jada Woods and mixed by Brett Sanderson with original music from Lush Life. For more Lush Life, check out his recent mixtape, Idols and Enemies, and visit Lush Life online at theyoungandinlove.com. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast so each new episode of Ferguson Voices lands in your feed once it's released. Ferguson Voices is available on iTunes, Google Play, and other platforms. If you like what you hear, Hit us up with a solid rating and share these stories with friends. 